Okay, let's turn to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians 4, verse 2. We'll read to verse 6. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward them that are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for this special time to come together and to read your word. We thank you for the privilege it is to gather with the saints and to read from the scriptures and to learn of you. And I pray that you'd take this passage this morning, that you'd speak to each one of us I pray that we'd leave here, that we would leave here changed, God. Thank you for your word that it gives life and that it guides us and that it's pure and it's holy and it's wise. And I pray that you give us ears to hear. So fill us with your Holy Spirit and me with your spirit that we might hear from you and glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. This is Paul's last word of instruction in the letter to the Colossians. So we've come a long way. And we've come to the end. And this is his final word before he wraps everything up with uh, farewells to his friends and greetings and such. So let's pay close attention to what Paul has to say in the end, in his last word of instruction. Just as a, by means of review... The, the letter to the Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he had never actually seen face-to-face. Have you ever written a letter to someone that you've never seen face-to-face? And that doesn't include writing a letter to the government or the IRS. <laughs> a pen pal? Have you ever had a pen pal before? I remember doing that a long time ago. But it's amazing that the Apostle Paul, having never seen them, he writes a letter like this, full of love, full of fatherly concern, compassion, and advice, good advice for them, because he actually loves them. And he writes because there's actually a danger. It's a young church. They're still standing in grace. They've not been moved away from the gospel. But there's a danger of that, because everywhere Paul goes, everywhere the gospel goes, everywhere the apostles have preached, there's these pseudo-apostles that come afterwards, and they start teaching things because they can't spearhead the work, so they have to go behind the apostles. They can't trailblaze the jungle. They just go behind the apostles, and they start spreading their false doctrines, which essentially is that it's wonderful for you to believe in Jesus because he is indeed the promised Messiah, and we're not going to deny that. These false apostles weren't denying that. They were saying, yes, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior, died and rose again. But his whole message of grace... That's the real issue that the false teachers had a problem with. It was the message of grace. It was the message that by simply believing and putting your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, that you were right with God, that you didn't need to do anything more than just that to be right with God. And this message disturbed the false apostles who, though they believed in Jesus, they believed that, no, you have to obviously keep the law. God gave the law and he was serious about it. And you don't just make that void. You don't just come along and say that you don't need to keep the law and the commandments anymore. And this type of false doctrine isn't anything old. It's still uh, around today. It's still around today. Many people who claim to be Christians and you talk about Jesus and you say that they believe in Jesus and everything that Jesus did, they still yet oppose the teaching of grace of salvation by grace through faith and faith alone. They say, no, it's great that you believe in Jesus and you definitely need to believe, but you also need X, Y, and Z, whatever X, Y, and Z is. Something more than simple faith in Jesus. And what Paul spends most of his time doing is combating 
this false doctrine by showing us the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Christ is sufficient. Paul teaches us that Jesus actually fulfills all the law for us. Yes, we take the law seriously by believing in Jesus. No, we're not making the law void by believing in Jesus. We're not making any of the commandments void by believing in Jesus. Christ Jesus, because God honors his law, sent his son to, to die on the cross to bear the curse of the law for us, to fulfill the just demands of the law on our behalf. And that by believing in him, everything is accomplished. Everything is fulfilled. Nothing is made, made void. Jesus is sufficient. So Paul spends his time in the letter to the Colossians dealing with the sufficiency of Christ as well, showing us how we are reconciled. Let me just read a verse from Colossians chapter 1. And you can turn there if you'd like. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. Verse 222. He says that... Christ, having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you, that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in the sight of God. And then going over to chapter 2, at verse 10, he says here, another statement of our, now, our position in Christ is totally complete. He says, And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power, in whom you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You're buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened, made alive with him, having forgiven you of all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us and which was contrary to us and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Do you notice the emphasis is on Jesus' death? Do you notice that? That... You're now, now that you're right with God, now that you're forgiven of all your sins, now that you're reconciled, it's all past tense because of the death of Jesus. Not because of you keeping any commandments. Not because of you fulfilling any law. But because of what Jesus did on the cross. You'll notice that. Through faith, you've been united to him in his death and his resurrection. So Jacob, because he's believed on Christ, has actually died with Christ and risen with Christ. He's completely... His identity is now in Christ. He's completely sufficient. Completely complete in Jesus. When we, look at, when we look at our fellow believers, do we see complete people or incomplete people? How we look, right? If we look, if we look at them and them only, and if we only judge them according to law, then obviously you're going to see an incomplete person. You're going to see an incomplete person when you look. At, you're going to see an incomplete person when you look at yourself, and then your your relationship with God, unfortunately, is just going to be one tiresome, irksome thing of trying to measure up and achieve a completeness through your own works. It can never happen. It'd be a goose chase. Or you can look at your brothers and your sisters and yourself through Christ, and you can see they're complete. And then it's not about striving anymore, it's about resting in Him. So Paul deals with this in Colossians. Christ is sufficient for you in all things. And then in chapter 3, Paul turns his attention to practical living as Christians. And he gives the Colossians instructions, or marching orders. He gives them instructions for two reasons. One, to strengthen them in their defensive position. So as not to be persuaded to go towards the false teachers. Practical Christianity strengthens us defensively against false doctrines because we see that, you know, through believing in Christ, through believing in His grace, my life is changed. And I need nothing more but that. But also, He tells us to walk practically because, one, it's suitable to the gospel, but two, it's also an offensive weapon for us to reach out and to do combat against false these false doctrines. And we're going to talk more about that today. So we come to chapter 4. And this is Paul wrapping up the practical side of the 
letter. And here's his last two instructions. And, and by the way, is there anything that Paul instructed to Colossians in the practical section that we can't do? I mean, is there anything like that's cultural or only relevant to the first century? Like, seek those things which are above? Is that just a first century possibility? If you're risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. That's something that we can do, right? Mortify your members which are upon the earth. That's something we can do. How about put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. That's something we can do. That's something we're, we ourselves are instructed to do. Because the situation for the Colossians is very similar to ours. Even though we here, I believe, are standing in God's grace, we're standing firm in the doctrine of of the truth of the gospel. That doesn't mean we can just relax. That doesn't mean we can just say, you know, we don't need to think about these things. We don't need to protect one another. We don't need to look out for one another. Because false teaching is always around us, always trying to take us off and away from the faith that we have and the rest that we have in Jesus. So we come to chapter 4, verse 2. And this also we can do. So notice what it says in his final word of instruction. He says, continue in prayer. Now the word in the Greek is actually a lot stronger than continue in prayer. And a lot more insightful. The word in the Greek for continue is proskartereo. And here's Six definitions. And when you take all these six definitions together, then you'll see what it's saying. To adhere to a thing. What does adhere mean? Stick, yeah. To adhere to a thing, to be devoted or constantly attending to a thing. To be steadfastly attentive unto. To give unremitting care to a thing. To continue all the time in a place. To persevere and not to faint. Listen to this next one. To show oneself courageous for. And the last. To be in constant readiness for a thing. To wait on constantly like a servant. You ever seen those servants that would wait behind? Who was saying that? Uh, was it Bob? Or someone in their travel said that. Or it was Bethany in China. When she would go to a restaurant. Now, when we go to a restaurant in our country, the waiter doesn't wait on you constantly, right? Sometimes you're like, waiter, where's the waiter, right? But in China, as you're eating, the person is behind you like this, and if you take a sip, they'll fill up your cup again like that. <laughs> yeah. That's the idea. That's the idea. To adhere to to steadfastly give your attention to or to be devoted. This is what he's applying to prayer, brothers and sisters, to prayer. Now, that's an amazing thing, isn't it? Stick to prayer. Be devoted to prayer. Constantly be attentive to prayer. Show yourself courageous for prayer. Persevere in prayer. Don't give up. Continue all the time in prayer. This is what he's saying here. All this to prayer. And you know, in the book of Acts, we actually see the believers doing this. Take a little brief tour through the book of Acts with me. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Notice what it says here about the believers and what they're doing. We can look at them. Acts 1, verse 14. I'll just go through this quickly, so you'll have to be nimble-fingered. Acts 1, 14. Or you could write these down and check them out later, too. It says, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication, with the women, Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Talking about the believers in the upper room. These all continued. That's the word proskartereo. 
They devoted themselves constantly to prayer. That's the first thing that we see the church doing, is praying. Chapter 2, verse 42. Now as people are coming into the church, people are, are being added to their number. It tells us what their daily life is about, what they do. It says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. So they continued proskriterio, steadfastly, in prayer, as well as uh, the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, and breaking of bread together. Those are things that they adhered to and stuck together. These are things we ought to also attend ourselves to constantly. Prayer is what I want to look at this morning, but we could also notice the apostles' doctrine. We stick to it. And we don't move from it. We continue to attend to it. We continue to learn more about it. We grow in our understanding of it. And fellowship. What about that one? How many of you feel like you're devoted to fellowship? You adhere to it. And you attend to it courageously. (laughs) You might need some courage. Right? And the breaking of bread also includes fellowship and remembrance of the Lord together. And lastly, we'll go to 6.4. Notice what the apostles say. 6.4. The apostles say, it's not good that we're waiting on tables because you're taking us away from what we need to do, what God's called us to do. We will give ourselves continually, proskriterio, to prayer into the ministry of the word. Now, some people might say, well, that's the apostles. But remember now, the apostle Paul is telling us in Colossians 4 to give ourselves continually to prayer. That's what he's saying. Maybe this is one of the great secrets of the early church. I'm not saying this is the only secret. There are people that talk about it as if it's the only secret. If only we prayed all the time, then we would have a transformation in the church. But... I often find that with many Christian circles that emphasize prayer, there is not an emphasis on the Apostles' Doctrine, and there's not an emphasis on the Gospel and on the Word of His grace. So there's not going to be any uh, result, I don't believe. This is one of the secrets of the early church, and I think this is one that we've had a hard time learning, and that God, well, here in this letter... Is he just saying this to the Colossians, or is this God's word to us as well? So, brothers and sisters, if we have ears to hear, continue in prayer. Be devoted to it. Just meditate on that this morning. Why prayer? Well, here's four reasons why prayer. Number one, prayer works. Do you believe prayer works? Do you believe Jesus believed prayer works? And the apostles, they believed in prayer, didn't they? That's why they devoted themselves to prayer. And in every turn and in every decision, the apostle Paul even says, in everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God with thanksgiving, right? But in everything by prayer, because prayer works, number one. When we pray, God hears us. We're not praying to a brick wall, and we're not praying to ourselves. We're praying to a person. We're praying to our God. He's alive. And God hears and God responds. So one of the reasons why perhaps we have such a hard time praying is because we've lost a vision that prayer works. Because we've lost a vision of praying to God. And it's kind of just become this, this individualistic discipline. It's just a discipline for me. It's just about me disciplining myself. It's not about me actually talking to God. And that leads into the second thing. Prayer is a privilege. Prayer is a privilege to come before God and commune with God and to talk with God is a privilege that Christ died for on the cross. That's why the book of Hebrews says, come boldly before the throne of grace and receive the help that you need when you need it. Believe in a God who's alive and real that you can come to by the blood of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. 
We come through the veil that was torn in prayer. It's a high privilege. The Bible says that God does not hear the prayers of the wicked, but the righteous, he delights in their prayers. This is the fourth thing, the third thing. God delights in prayer. Why prayer? God delights in it. God is happy when his saints get on their knees to pray. He actually delights in it, the psalm says. Do you believe that? Or is it just a discipline for you? That God actually is glad that somebody is believing he's a person, believing that Christ died for them, and coming to pray. And believing that they need him, and that he can supply their needs. That's something that pleases God, and God delights in. So prayer isn't only praying for things that we need, and that's largely what it is. But in doing that, it also is a pleasure to God. And a child of God, as we read in Ephesians, wants to know how we can please God. Not for your salvation, right? Do you have to pray to be saved? No. You, you might never pray for the rest of your life and trust in Christ and be saved. But boy, you miss out. And other people miss out too because of your lack of prayer. So the last thing is we need to pray. We have need of prayer. We are people that are daily needy and we daily need assistance from God. We can't stand on our own for anything. Jesus even said for our bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, if we need God for our bread, if you need God for your cereal, okay, how many of you take for granted your cereal? If you need God for that, how much more do you need God to help you walk through this very difficult world seeing Him and seeing His grace on a day-to-day basis? Daniel in the Old Testament, considered prayer to be worth dying for. He prayed to God every day. And when the king sent out an edict, no more praying, Daniel said, well, okay, I'll go to the lions. That's fine. Because I need to pray. (laughs) Notice in the second part of the verse, Not only does Paul say continue in prayer or be steadfast or adhere to courageously all the time in prayer, but he gives us a little bit of insight into what kind of prayer. He says, watch in the same with thanksgiving. Watch in the same. To watch is to be on guard, right? You think of a castle. I always get an image of a castle. Some guy standing with a spear like at the top of a castle at a gate. I always get an image of that. He's watching. And what's his job? Well, through the night, he's supposed to watch for any danger or any trouble. Or watch out for. You know, he's watching out for the people who are sleeping. He's watching out for the people that aren't looking. He's designated to look and to watch, to stand on guard. And in Ephesians, flip there, and keep, maybe keep your finger in there because this passage in Colossians is paralleled to the one in Ephesians. And I'm going to refer to it many times. So keep your finger in Ephesians chapter 6 and keep your finger in Colossians 4 as well. And Paul tells us what we're watching for in Ephesians. Because remember, these are written about the exact same time and so Paul's thoughts are very much the same. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. He says here, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto all perseverance and supplication for who? For all saints. Not the church. I mean, that is in, that's included, but not exhaustive here. <laughs> what are we, who are we supposed to watch out for when we pray? One another. One another. This is the point I want to really emphasize this morning. 
Devote yourself to prayer, watching, watching out for everybody. This is who we're watching out for, brothers and sisters. We need each other. How many of you can see behind you without a mirror or those fancy glasses? You need one another. We can't do this alone. And Paul here is telling us, look, pray for each other. Watch out for each other in prayer. Watch out for each other in prayer. Now, do you feel like you you look out for one another in prayer? Would you like someone to watch out for you in prayer? Do you think you need it? Or if somebody says, how can I pray for you? And you say, I don't need any prayer. It's okay. (laughs) I'm okay. I'll take care of myself. Thank you very much. We need one another in view of the danger. In view of the danger. Because like we've seen here, these people, though they're standing... As we've seen, there's a great conflict. Remember chapter 2 at the beginning? There's a great conflict going on. It's like being in a gladiator arena together. And there's a great war going on, even though it's not physical, it's spiritual. And we need to look out for one another and watch one another. And one way we can do that, not only by encouraging each other in the Word and edifying each other, but by praying for one another. This is the instruction that he gives. To pray and watch out for one another in view of the danger. And I need it, brothers and sisters. So please pray for me. Because I need it. I need you to pray and watch out for me. In view of the danger. Because there's many dangers. And he says here with thanksgiving. Which is a very interesting thing to tag on to that. Watch out for one another with thanksgiving. And this can be taken two ways. And I think they're both valid. One is, you're thankful for the saints. If you're thankful for... If I'm thankful for Jacob, I'm going to thank God for Jacob. And I'm going to pray for Jacob. This is what we see the Apostle doing in every letter, don't we? Every time he starts his letter, Greetings, everybody. I thank God every time I think of you in prayer for your faith. And I pray that God would cause you to abound in love more and more and grow in grace and in the knowledge of Him. Is Paul encouraging us here to simply follow his example and follow suit. Watch out for one another with thanksgiving. It's a motivation also. Thanksgiving. I think of that guy standing on the castle wall with his spear and he's looking around. You know, if he's a grateful soldier, if he loves his king and he's grateful for the life that the king has provided for him, he's going to stand guard. He's not going to fall asleep. Thankfulness is motivating him. He's not just doing it for the paycheck. He's not just doing it because he's been told and he doesn't want to. He's like, yes, sir, I'll go, inv- I'll go stand watch on the wall. But I just love you so much. And I really am appreciative of the honor of doing this. And I'm really appreciative of the position and of this, this castle and this life that you've provided for me and my family. I'll stand guard gladly. Are you thankful to God for your salvation? And that he would even consider you to be a guard and to be a watchman for his church. Isn't it amazing that God didn't only take you as a sinner and lift you out of the pit and forgive you of all your sins, but then he also gives you jobs? He's also, you know what? You know, I didn't just clean you up. To send, you, know, you know, why don't you come over here and help me? Why don't you come over here and do this for me? Why don't you come over here and watch out for the saints over here? That's a, an awesome privilege that we can be thankful for and work with thanksgiving. So it's two ways. Thankfulness to God and thankfulness for one another. For one another. We see that in the Apostle Paul. This is what one commentator says. Herbert Carson, he says this. Thanksgiving is mentioned as the characteristic element in prayer to which Paul constantly reverts, and we see him do that. But also, surely, because thankfulness or praise imparts a spiritual freshness to prayer, which acts as an antidote to that sluggishness of soul which he is here seeking to combat. How many of you know from experience in prayer that when we're not feeling thankful to God, prayer is very difficult to do? 
But it seems like when you get on your knees and you're actually thankful. Do you, ever, do you notice this though? Like if you pray out of an apprehension of, of thanksgiving, it's very easy, isn't it? It's like, praise God, thank you God. And then it's just one, two, three, four, five after that. It's so easy. Because you're, you're praying with thanksgiving. It seems like every time we see prayer in the Bible, it's got thanksgiving. Devote yourself to prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. And in verse 3, Paul now has a personal request. He says this, Also, with all, meanwhile, praying for us also. You see the word also there in verse 3? Colossians 4.3. Do you see the word also there? He says, hey, while you're praying for the saints, pray for us. I wonder if the people really did pray for Paul. I'm sure they did. I have no doubt about it. Think about it. Maybe one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul's ministry is so effective is because he had all these churches all over the Roman world praying for him. <laughs> you know? God was obviously at work. Pray for us also. And now Paul turns his, the, the focus of prayer now from a, from, from a defensive kind of praying to an offensive kind of praying. The, the verse 2 is defensive. He says, watch out for one another. Pray that we would stand strong. Lord, I pray that you protect Alan from, from being deceived by false teachers. Help him to see today that he's blessed with every spiritual blessing. But in verse 3, it's an offensive now. Paul's saying, now, okay, watch out for one another, watch out for the saints, but now pray for us now. And here's what I want you to pray for. Pray that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I'm also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. So now Paul says, pray for us as missionaries, not just himself, but those that are with him as companions who are actively involved in spreading the gospel. We need prayer for that too. We don't just need prayer for protection. We need prayer for penetration. We need prayer to go, to preach, to see souls get saved, not just to see saints get preserved. And Paul is keenly aware of the power of prayer. I think Paul was keenly aware that his ministry largely stood or fell on the prayers of God's people. Now, a door of utterance, what does this mean? He says, pray for us that a door of utterance might be open. And there's two ways this can be taken. Two ways people have taken this. The first way is that Paul is saying, pray that we would have opportunity to preach. Doors that would be open for us to go and to preach. And in defense of this view, we find in passages like in 1 Corinthians or the book of Acts, it says, a great door is open to us and we're ready to go. Remember in the book of Acts when the Macedonian says, come over here and help us? Remember that? That was what Paul describes as a door that opened for him to go. He tried to go over here and the Spirit said no. He tried to go over here and the Spirit said no. And then the door opened to Macedonia and he went. So he's, he could be saying here, pray for opportunities to preach. Some take this as Paul asking them to pray that he would be released from prison to get, to get moving. So that he'd be able to get, get on with it. I don't necessarily believe that. There's another way you can take this door of utterance. That is, that a door of utterance is specifically that God would give him and the others the ability to preach. The ability to preach. Not the opportunity to preach, but the ability to preach. A door of utterance. Now notice back in Ephesians 6, I want to read to you what it says there. Because he says essentially the exact same thing, but notice how he words it. Ephesians 6, verse 19. He doesn't use the word door, but he uses the word utterance again. And he says, and for me, that utterance, that is speaking, may be given unto me that I may open my mouth, I think that's the door, boldly, 
to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And he says the same thing in Colossians. He says, to speak, that God would open unto us a door of utterance. Like, it would almost be like God removing a hindrance from mouth, that he would speak the mystery of Christ for which he's in bonds. See, I don't think Paul lacked opportunity, because he even says in Ephesians, I'm an ambassador in bonds. So even if I'm in bonds, I'm an ambassador. And we're spreading the gospel even from prison. Doesn't only talk about himself too either. He didn't say just me. In Colossians, he said that God would give us a door of utterance, and not everybody was in prison. Whether you're free or whether you're in prison, pray for us that God would enable us to speak boldly and make known the mystery of Christ as we ought. Now you could take that both ways. I'm not saying, I'm not being dogmatic on which one, but I personally take the second. We need that. We all need that. Whoever is involved in sharing the gospel, can you relate to that prayer? Either for opportunity or for ability. Does that make sense to you? How many of you have tried to share the gospel with no ability? Just feel like you were just spitting out sawdust. <laughs> Me. <laughs> How many of you know the difference when it seems like God opens your mouth and you're just speaking boldly of the Spirit and the mystery of the soul is becoming clear to the person that you're talking to? And then you realize, and what do you, what do you say afterwards always? God was totally working, you know, and it was totally Him. He was speaking. Was He? I believe He was. But you could take it the other way. You know, how many of you struggle with opportunity also? share the gospel. And you say, God, give me an opportunity. And then one, after you pray that, someone comes into the Amco shop and you get to share the gospel with them. Either way, here's the challenge for spread of the gospel. Opportunity and ability, brothers and sisters. Do you believe this is an important thing to pray for and that we need to pray for this? Do you believe that? Do you believe that this is something worthy to devote yourself to and to adhere to. In Colossians, Paul says to speak the mystery of Christ. In Ephesians, he says the same thing, but he says to speak the mystery of the gospel. You know this is the same thing? Synonyms. The mystery of Christ is the mystery of the gospel. Ephesians 6, verse 19. The Bible often uses synonyms, so learn to notice that. Learn to notice the synonyms throughout the scriptures. The mystery of Christ is the gospel, and he says, it's for this reason that I'm in chains. The reason why I'm in chains, verse, verse 3 of chapter 4 of Colossians, to speak the mystery of Christ for which I'm also in bonds. Why was Paul in prison? Because he was a thief? Because he was... They thought the Jews thought he was a blasphemer. But specifically he pinpoints it. It's for this gospel that I'm in prison. Now, if we look at the reason why he's in prison, we see that it was because of the issue of the Gentile. Paul spreads more light on this in Ephesians chapter 3. Because Paul was saying that Gentiles were now a part of God's people, Israel, simply by faith in Jesus Christ, and that they didn't have to become, get circumcised and keep the law. And God justified them that way. And he justified Jews that way too. Because Paul was just putting everyone on an equal level when it came to being right with God, the Jews said, this man's not fit to live, kill him. And the Romans saved him from being torn apart in the temple. That's why he was in prison. But it's not just the issue of the Gentile. That's the immediate issue. But the issue of the inclusion of the Gentiles is really simply the issue of righteousness by faith. And many people miss that. They think that there's a whole new movement today where they think that the whole purpose of what Paul's after isn't this righteousness issue that Luther and Calvin thought, but really the issue is simply the inclusion of Gentiles and putting everyone on an equal level playing field, Jews and Gentiles. Now we agree 
that Paul did do that. He put everyone on an equal level in a playing field. But the reason he did it was because of the issue of righteousness. And he said, look, keeping the law doesn't save you. Being circumcised doesn't make you right with God. Being a Jew doesn't make you right with God. The only thing that makes you right with God is Christ. And because that's true, a, Jew, a Gentile who believes it is right with God and a Jew who believes it is right with God. Everyone's on the same level. But the issue is righteousness. So ultimately, the reason why Paul's in prison is because of righteousness. And that's what the gospel is, right? The gospel is all about the revelation of righteousness by faith for everyone who believes, whether Jew or Gentile. And that is the mystery of the Messiah, the mystery of Christ. He came to bring us righteousness by his death. Even if the immediate surface issue might look a little different, if you get to the root of it, it's because of righteousness. The Messiah, the Christ Jesus, came into the world to die on the cross to make us right with God as a gift of his grace through faith. And anyone who tells you otherwise is a liar and is not of God. Even if they talk about lots of Christian things. If they don't understand the gospel, they don't understand the Christ. No matter how much they talk about him. And moving on to the last exhortation he has. So the first one is prayer. Prayer, defensive and offensive. Watch out for the saints and pray for the spreading of the gospel. Devote yourself to it. In the last two verses now, verse 4, verse 5 and 6, he says this, Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, are outside, not Christians. Walk in wisdom towards them who are not Christians. Redeeming the time, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. The parallel to this, if you want to know, is Ephesians 5.15 in context. Walking in wisdom is not merely being wise so that you aren't influenced. Okay? Walking in wisdom toward the non-believers is not merely, it is this, is not merely being wise so that you're not influenced by them in a negative way. But it's being wise so that you are an influence to them in a positive way. It's twofold. You're being wise to, toward non-believers so that you don't get sucked in or that you draw them in to see Jesus. And you seize the opportunity. This is what redeeming the time means. Redeeming the time means you're seizing the opportunity to do these things. You're noticing the opportunity. How many of you have ever gone shopping and you've noticed there's only one item left of the thing that you want? You ever notice that? Recently I bought a bookshelf online. And this bookshelf, I had to go online to get it because they don't sell it anymore in the valley. They don't sell it at Walmart. They don't sell it at Shopco or anything like that. There's a particular bookshelf I wanted that would go with my other bookshelves. And as I looked online, there's only one left. I couldn't find any more, just one. And so what did I do? I seized the opportunity to buy it. Because if I had waited, who knows? There's a billion other people that could have bought that. <laughs> this, is the, uh, this is the sense of redeeming the time. How much, what, when a minute goes by, do you get that minute back? When a day goes by, do you get that day back? If you have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone and that passes, do you get that opportunity back? Maybe, maybe not. But you certainly don't get that opportunity back. You might get another one. You might not. The sense of redeeming the time is seeing the urgency of the time, seeing that there's only one left. Every day there's only one. It's like buying that last thing every day, that last bookshelf, every day. And you're seizing it up. It literally means that in the Greek, to buy the time, to purchase it, to purchase it. And there's really, there's two senses here. One, we seize it up, not, well, one, we seize it up because the time is short. Christ is coming back, and like I said, that day's not going to come back again. There's only one. I'm going to seize up this opportunity. I'm not going to waste my time. But in the other sense, it's also, you're buying it so that somebody else doesn't buy it, like Satan. 
Because Satan also, it says in Ephesians chapter 5, 15, it says that uh, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Satan also is seeking to use our days and to use people's time against Christ. It's not just neutral. If you sit back and don't buy the bookshelf, it's not that it's just going to sit there or just disappear. If you sit back and don't redeem the time, guaranteed that Satan will come and he will redeem the time. So there's this conflict. In chess, there's this concept of time. They actually use that word, time. And it's the amount of moves. If you have to make two moves, that's two time. And you don't want to wait in chess. If you have an opportunity, go for it, or else you'll lose that time, and maybe your opponent will take, will take that as well. Or in the battle, sometimes in the battle, there's a split second when you make a decision when one general says, now we have to move or else. If we, if we just sit back, the enemy's going to move and he's going to seize that time. And that's the sense. Because we have an enemy who's actively, actively involved in trying to bring us down and other people and non-believers down. Walk in wisdom. Don't be influenced, but influence them. This is the sense in Ephesians as well, if you remember. It says, don't have any fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Don't be influenced by them, but you rather shine light into every situation and redeem the time. Individually, each one of us. I suppose you could also take this on a national level too, where right now we have wonderful opportunity in this country with freedom of religion, but other countries they don't. We can also redeem the time and the opportunity that we have in this country to spread the gospel. And in verse 6, we'll close with this verse. And this thought, he gives us an application of wisdom, of being wise. This is one of the wisest things we can do right here. This is one of the wisest possible things any one of us can apply to our lives. And he says this, let your speech be always. How much? Most of the time. Sometimes. At church. Always. Always. In grace. One commentator, scholar named Lightfoot, he, he commented that the Greek historian Plutarch spoke about grace and salt compared grace and salt. He says, the many call salt, he was actually speaking about his day and just, you know, thoughts people had. The many call salt graces because mingled with most things, it makes them agreeable and pleasant to the taste. Paul here compares grace and salt. Salt makes something pleasant to the taste. Sometimes we speak of salt as preserving from corruption, but here I don't believe this is what is in view because he says seasoned with salt. In the Greek, it's literally seasoned. You're putting salt in your food. Why? To season it, to make it pleasant. Let your speech be seasoned with salt. Let your speech be with grace. When your words are gracious, your words are pleasant, even if they're hard words, right? There's a, there's a verse in the, in the book of Job, can that which is unsavory be eaten without salt? No, it can't. You can say hard things without grace, can't be eaten. But if you say hard things with salt, with grace, people can eat them. Let your speech always be with salt. Jesus, Luke 4.22, it says, His words were full of grace. Jesus' words were full of grace. Does that mean His words were full of the doctrine of grace? Or does it just mean they were gracious? Both. They were gracious because they were full of the doctrine of grace. You see, our words are gracious to one another. We speak graciously when we speak in grace, which is what the Greek is here. It's not with grace, it's in grace, meaning let your speech be always in the sphere or atmosphere of grace, charis, of God's grace. If we live and move and have our being and think and act in grace, in the context and the atmosphere of the doctrine of the truth of God's grace, 
our words will be gracious. So our words and our actions should be full of the doctrine of grace, which then makes them gracious and salty to those around us. And notice here, it doesn't say that you may know what to answer every man. Because that's not in view. This isn't the... Paul's not saying that you may know what to answer. You might have an answer for everybody. That's Peter. Peter deals with that. An apologetic and a defense and a reason. But here Paul is talking about the manner of answering. He says that you may know how to answer. Not what to say, but how to say it. How to say it. Whatever you say, that you'll say it graciously because it's rooted in grace. It's in our manner. Isn't that amazing? Always, brothers and sisters, whether you're talking with non-believers or believers, always, how ought you to speak? Always graciously. And when you prepare something, when you season it, do you usually season it before you put it on the table or after you put it on the table? Ideally. Ideally. Before, ideally. Usually, if you, you bring out salt and pepper on the table and you put salt on it, eh, the soup needs a little salt, you know? <laughs> it's not quite up to snuff. Now, sometimes we do it because people are, have different preferences. But ideally, you prepare it with salt beforehand and then you bring it out and you eat. If you have to put it on afterwards, it's because you didn't cook it quite right. You understand what I'm saying. You understand what I'm saying. But the point here is you season it with salt. You prepare yourself beforehand how to speak. You don't just, oops, I said it kind of nasty. Let me retract. Let me put a little salt in there. Okay, if you have to do that, you have to do that, right? Better than nothing. But ideally, the best thing is to season it first, cook it in the atmosphere of grace, and then bring it out to the people for them to eat. Food is seasoned in order to make it appetizing. We don't change the truth, by the way. This is not talking about not speaking truth, which can be really harsh, really hard sometimes. But we season that truth with grace. We don't take away from the truth, which is what, unfortunately, many people do. They take away from the truth so it doesn't offend. No, we keep the truth and we season it with grace. That's what we do. Two instructions, final instructions for the Colossians and for us. Devote yourselves to prayer. Watch out for one another. Pray for one another and for us that the door of utterance might be open, that the gospel might be made known. And walk in wisdom towards non-believers. Don't be influenced by them, but influence them and redeem the time. And whatever you do and say, do it in grace. season the soul. So I thought actually we could close this morning just briefly in a time of prayer. And I know we've, we did this a while ago, but maybe everyone can just with the person next to them, just pray for that person. Pray for that person like in that watching out sense. Just pray that God would preserve them and protect them and guide them and help them to see grace every day, and then vice versa. And then maybe together, after you do that, just do it briefly. It doesn't have to be a long thing. Then pray that the gospel would go forth, that God would give us here a door of utterance as well. So just grab somebody next to you, and we'll close that way this morning.